Welcome to another episode of the Living Out Loud discussion series. Today's topic is getting caught up in surface saturation and DEI work. We'll explain a little bit more about what that means. I am your host, Charmaine Nuts, relational DI expert. If you are new here, we are openly talking about the scenarios and issues that come up in our workplaces and in other settings where we feel like we need to be buttoned up. The goal of every single episode is to reveal the layers and the nuances in our interactions with each other so that we can learn from them as a community that cares about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And as always, because I wear a lot of hats, I want to be clear that the thoughts, views, and opinions that I share, they're my own opinions. They are not as a representative of agencies that I'm employed by or contracted with. Now with me today, I have Nicole Vasquez. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's exciting. I've been really looking forward to doing this. Nicole is, I actually met her the first time as my professor when I was in the Master Social Art program at Dominguez Hills. She was the first professor that we had that took a very different approach to the classroom we had typically had, I see the look on your face, we had typically had a traditional teaching and there was nothing wrong with how teachers taught. But, you know, when you came on the scene, it was very much just, it was so different. It was very communal. It was relationshipy. It was vulnerable. You challenged us a lot. I remember it like very specific moments from your class. It was just mm -hmm. so different. And you have inspired me in a few different ways. I remember that experience and I frequently think about how I can help other people feel the same way. Well, I just wanted to say that I've never even told you that. So I imagine you're, you're sitting there like, what? I just like, <laughs> wow, no, thank you. That's really nice to hear. Yeah, I appreciate that. Of course, that. of course. Now, uh, we decided not to do the traditional bio thing. I don't know if there's anything that you want to share on top of how I know you and how we met. Or we can totally skip that. It's up to you. I guess I would just want to share like how I identify. My dad identified as Mexican-American. My mom is an immigrant from Panama. And so I'm bilingual, English, Spanish speaking. I identify as Afro-Latinx, queer, cis woman. Born in L.A., lived in the San Gabriel Valley, moved to the Midwest when I was seven because of my dad's job. And then I went to undergrad in the Midwest, lived there for a little bit before I came back to L.A. So just to give people a sense of who I am, where I've grown up, that kind of thing. So I'm back in the San Gabriel, San Gabriel Valley now. I've been here for a while. MSW, MPP, that's uh, public policy. That's that's what I'd like folks to know. Yeah, that's it. That's all. Yeah, you, you do a lot of stuff. And in preparation for today, we were talking about your experience of doing consulting, coaching with leaders, and probably use a lot of the different experiences that you have as your lens for today, and certainly mine. Uh, so with that, let's get, let's just get into it. Let's do it. And I started this by saying that we are getting into the surface saturation. And I don't think that's a common term that people use. So it might be a good idea for us to just explain what are we talking about when we say surface saturation? It's a pretty simple concept. I think you have your own term for it and I have mine too, and it's not even surface saturation. But let's start there and share. What is your take on that? And then I'll share mine. Like when you said surface saturation, I can only assume like what you mean by that. Like all this, what you like? What I think, like when you say that, surface saturation in relation to you know DEI work, I think is is just like very surface level. Like for me, saturating the surface, like we're not getting deep. The term diversity, equity, and inclusion, and whatever all the manifestations that have come from that, I see them as being very surface level and not going deep into what that actually means. And those, those three letters, in my opinion, have been co-opted, have been watered down, 
but they don't really mean a lot. So that's my take on what's what you mean when you say surface saturation. <laughs> that to me, that's how I see it too. I also feel that there is a commercialization attached to doing DEI work in a particular way that keeps people at the surface. So I would agree with everything that you said. It's our communal, for the most part, communal participation in over overly attaching to the things that keep us at the surface. We don't go deep with the things that we learn. We're typically learning things we're keeping in our head and not really getting the things inside of us to help us struggle with how to use it. And with the commercialization, I actually attach it to what you were talking about with the acronyms. People want to be excited about DEI work. And then at the same time, they attach it to the things that feel good and we can market it a certain way and we can choose certain words so that we can say that we're doing something great. People spend a lot of time in that area. And I remember you and I were talking about this. It was, I know you don't like the terms and acronyms and you have a response to that, and I totally get it, and I share your feeling. I wonder if you could speak on that a little bit, the, your feelings about the acronyms and why people get stuck there. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking about Jedi. Like, once we got to Jedi, I'm like, and when you talk about, like, things that make people feel good, it's, and I think we have to keep that in mind, too, because with the work that we do have to think about what people connect with and what people connect to. And maybe we use that as an entry point in going deeper. So people may respond to Jedi because it's like Star Wars. Like mm -hmm. Jedi, like we're gonna, I don't know, whatever, be Jedis in this DEI work or whatever. The J, like justice is absolutely very important. But I think because the reason why we don't go deeper is because we're not one like we're not conditioned to and it's hard and also as you were talking I was thinking of two things like frameworks I guess or or ideas um well frameworks like one of our connections is critical race theory because the MSW program at Dominguez Hills is rooted in critical race theory one of the tenets of critical race theory is interest convergence so when like when you mm -hmm. talk about surface saturation and we start to think about and talk about why mm. it happens. It's the interest convergence. Because like when we had our racial reckoning in 2020, another racial reckoning happened recently in 2020. Mm -hmm. And you had all of these corporate responses and all of these DEIs. So that's why I was like, that's when I was like, no, I'm not down these terms anymore. Because it is very performative. Like people put corporations, put organizations, programs, put messages statements on their websites and that's essentially as far as it goes it doesn't go mm -hmm. any deeper than that and so going back to interest convergence with critical race theory is because it's a global it's centered in the u.s but it's like this global racial reckoning that people have to respond to and they don't want to be left out and what is it going to mean for their brand because they're going to start to get called out potentially mm -hmm. like calls for boycotts and those kinds of things. So there has to be a response. Mm -hmm. So that's the interest convergence in terms of the interests of people who want justice and who want racial equity. Um, those interests converge with people that are corporations that are all about or programs, organizations that are all about the bottom line, whether it's making money or like a lot of the work that I do is with academic programs. So it's about attracting mm -hmm. more students or a particular type of student. So those are one, that's one kind of thing that I have in mind that like why, the why of like, why does surface saturation happen is the mm. interest convergence. And then the other one originated with the work of Temo Kuhn, mm. and that's mm -hmm. the white supremacy culture characteristics. That's just how our society functions is under this kind of umbrella of, of white supremacy and like how it plays out of like, we're going back to us not being conditioned to go deep. We don't talk about our feelings in the workplace. We don't, it's very mechanical. Like, how are you? Just to respond like, oh, I'm fine. How are you? Or inside, you're probably falling apart because it's like, it's not going to make us feel comfortable to yeah. talk about, oh, I'm still like very personally for myself, like still grieving the loss of my father, which happened five years ago. And 
in the first couple of years after that happened, like having to go back to work and stuff, people don't want to hear like, no, I'm falling apart inside. That's hard. Um, But that's what our, our society is like this idea of professionalism and what that means. So those things help me to work within these spaces so that I'm not frustrated by and continue to criticize this culture, how wide it is that people are averse to going deep. It just helps me understand it. Yeah, you just said some significant things that I feel could be several day trainings if they really wanted to be. (laughs) Because when you're talking about the interest convergence, I, I thought, yes, oh my goodness, that is absolutely accurate. I appreciate you explaining it too, what that actually meant. I remember when I was in grad school, that was the one that I had the most difficulty wrapping my mind around. For some reason, I just could not get it. So thank you for doing that. I agree that it does feel that one of the reasons that we stay in the surface place is because organizations that might want to appear as if they're doing the work don't want to do the deeper work. So they at least, here's what I'm going to contribute to the situation. There is that. Uh, I also feel that there is a widely shared not knowing what to do. A widely shared not knowing what to do. I've been recently in this last year, I've had, I've just been in so many spaces where I've had to create content curriculum in various capacities. And I've had to do a, a lot of research to look for ways to bring experiences that are impactful. And I'm looking for scenarios and snippets. I'm looking, I was just looking for so much stuff. I was getting so frustrated because there's not a lot of stuff out there for people to learn beyond the stereotypical surface stuff. And when I say that, I mean, there's a lot of learning about biases at a surface level. There is a lot in um, like the scenarios that are generated. When I say scenarios, I mean, you know how they give examples of here's what this can look like and microaggressions. And, and I'm looking for examples of the deeper stuff. Yeah. And it's the stereotypical examples. It's mm-hmm. don't touch a black woman's hair. Don't talk about someone's accent. Don't. It's very it's like that everywhere. And I'm looking for the more nuanced, complex situations so I can't find it. And that's just one example. So in, in many different examples I have been realizing, oh my goodness, this stuff doesn't really exist yet. People aren't talking about the true complexity of our interactions with each other and the changes that we're actually talking about beyond here are the do's and don'ts. Here are these checklists. Here's your guide. Do these steps. And even those aren't super tangible for people to get how to wrestle with and do behavior change. Now, I'm not saying that nothing exists. What I'm saying is overall, there's not a lot out there. Mm-hmm. And I think that contributes to the staying in the surface. There's not examples. And I, I don't think that's a reason to not do any deeper work at all. I do not. I'm just thinking that's a contributing factor. It's hard to find what stuff can look like. It really is. I heard you scoff at something. I don't remember where it was, and I'm super curious. What was that? I said microaggressions. That's what. What what was that about? Oh yeah, no, it it was just it was agreement. Basically, is all that surface level stuff that's out there. I think the reason I scoffed is because it's not effective. And actually, it now has been proven that anti bias, implicit bias trainings like are not effective because that is about awareness. And that's important because some people aren't even aware of yeah. the that they have biases or how they play out. But that's just like the very first baby step in doing this work. So that's yeah. where that's why I scoff because, yeah, like you find all of these examples out there and it's a good start, but it's not going to get us anywhere. It really isn't. Yeah, that's where that came from. Yeah. I have two questions and I'm not sure which one to ask. I'm going to put a pin on one of them. And I think it could be helpful. I'm thinking about listeners hearing this and understanding what we're saying conceptually. And I'm wondering if we could talk about 
how do people know if they're engaging in the surface stuff? Mm. Like what kinds of things would they be thinking and feeling and doing as individuals or even in their organization? And I know that this question could be answered with a lot of things. So maybe we don't have to name everything, but give people a sense of if you're doing this stuff and this is what's happening in you, you're likely at the surface level. What, mm-hmm. what do you think about what I'm saying? Yeah, no. And I can give you a short response. I think that if it <laughs> feels I got good, it. I got it. Mm. If it feels good and you're in there and you're like, yeah, this is working. I'm feeling good. And you leave the session or whatever it is, like the time together, the training, like, oh, yeah, I feel good. Then you're engaging in surface levels. Because mm. if you really want to change and you really want to interact differently and transform it's not gonna feel good and I think that's like us as social workers I think that's why we're good at this type of work because like we understand we incorporate like the clinical aspects of social work into this DEI work like the general Mm -hmm. frame or term that I use is anti-racist or anti-racism like intersectional anti-racist work for myself, but it doesn't like, you know, again, taking back to social work, it doesn't, therapy doesn't feel good. When we were in school hearing it gets worse before it gets better. That's Mm. how you know that you're changing or that growth is happening when it doesn't Mm. feel good. Like issues of race and like all of its intersections, that's some heavy, long-term standing that we have to work through. And that's why we stay at the surface level because we don't want to feel uncomfortable. We don't want to I've changed it. I used to say we have to look at our dirty insides, but I've changed that framing a little mm. bit because I don't feel like at the core, our insides are dirty. It's just at our core, like our insides are good and pure. And it, all these layers that have been added to it that it, we've been socialized through, mm. that those are the layers that we have to start to pull back. And that's not easy. Like, that's really hard. So, yeah. So just getting back to answering your question, if Knowing you're at the surface level is when you feel good and knowing that you're actually doing the work is when it doesn't feel good and it's hard. And when you want to leave, I think that's another thing. I'll tell you, I've been fired from a couple of potential like consulting jobs because folks are like, well, that's not really what I was looking for. That's not really what we had in mind. And my take is because what I offered was doing more of the deep work if it's within an organization building that what I call professional intimacy. If you're serious about this and you want to transform culture in whatever group that you're in or that you're a part of, like you have to build intimacy. And I say professional intimacy to make people feel a little better, safer about in being intimate with like their colleagues. Again, because that's not what we've been socialized to, how Mm. we've been socialized to interact in the workplace. Because this work is hard and it's personal, you have to build trust amongst the people that you're working with and Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's why yeah some folks that I've I'm not working with Mm -hmm. them is because they're like no that's not what it's not what we had in mind or that's not what we need yeah yes yeah I'm fine with it oh my goodness thank you agree with everything that you said (laughs) and I love the way it started with okay the answer is really easy it's when it feels really good And I just flashed to so many situations where that makes so much sense. And it's really interesting because as someone who leads this work, encourages this work, there's a lot of expectation setting that I try to do up front with, okay, this is going to be a great thing and it's going to be a struggle. And there's something about the upfrontness that still doesn't capture the reality of the situation mm-hmm. and whether it's individuals teams or groups there is this inevitable place that people in organizations will reach where it's real it requires a lot in your terms professional intimacy in mine i don't call it a bunch of things it's just the messiness of the work and it really just touches on requiring us to look at ourselves mm-hmm. when it gets there People either stop, pull back, or or even something that I wonder is an undertone of what you're saying, I've experienced, or even blame. So when people don't feel good 
about the work, if there are struggle points or it looks like it's not going well, they leave a meeting or a situation and it's, it's heavy, there is an association to that experience that this isn't the right way to do it. And that is not accurate. Now, it is within the realm of possibility that things aren't going well because it's not a good approach. That's obviously a thing for us to acknowledge. However, it is a very common experience that people reach that place. It doesn't feel good. And then there's so many reasons that come up that we rationalize as humans that, no, this isn't the right way to do it, or I'm going to escape because my own personal stuff, or as an organization, we don't got time to do it, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But the blame thing is the one that I, as a person leading this work, and I think this is relevant to either someone who has the actual job, committee work, consultants, people leading this work, when people experience that struggle area, the people leading get blamed that it's not working and it's not good, especially, well, let me just say that, they get blamed. And oftentimes there hasn't been enough time put in to even experience the change. And I just don't love that association between it's doesn't feel good, that means it's not working well. Something needs to change. The person or the group leading it, oh, we've got to stop. We need to do something else. And then there's an escape back to comfort. I feel like I'm saying a lot of stuff. My mind's going in a bunch of different directions. But you just got me thinking. You got me thinking, Nicole. Hmm. I mean, everything you're saying, mm -hmm. like, makes perfect sense to me. And that blame part is... It happens and it's, yeah, I think that's key. Like we want to cut and run when it gets hard and that's understandable. Yeah. Like people, and that's, I think that's another thing. Like people choose to go into therapy, but if you're at a workplace or in, at an organization, a lot of times this DEI work gets placed on you and it's not mm -hmm. something that you want to do. <laughs> I think that's like a whole other th part of that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you know what? Look, I knew these conversations were going to be hard because because of the different areas and paths you can take with it. DI work is the thing that people do or organizations will do as a, a thing on the side of regular business practices. They'll encourage employees, if you care about this, if you're passionate, go over here and do this thing on the side. And then here's our work that we're doing instead of thinking about it as an integral part of regular business practices. One of my struggle points in leading this work is getting people to see that diversity, equity, and inclusion is like the vehicle for org culture change. If an organization cares about doing things for its employees, therefore translating to whatever the service is, then they would engage in practices that are responsive to the employees that are there. Responsive and inclusive. So it's not, I think people over-associate DEI with specific topics, specific cultures, identities. It's mm -hmm. not, it isn't that. It is a regular business practice. And I've been saying, honestly, DEI work is as essential as an HR department. I don't know a business that does not have an HR department. Why? Because it's very important and it impacts everything and everyone. It's essential for business practices. I feel that DEI is the same, but that is not how it's treated. So it's really easy for that to contribute to surface stuff. There's only so much that organizations are going to be able to do with DEI practices as this separate thing over here that can just contribute to regular practices in pieces. I hope that makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. But that's where my brain is going. It's really hard to get people to see that. It's very hard. Yeah, and then to me, that's where interest convergence comes in. I hate to focus on organizations' bottom lines or like, I because I was going to say incentivize, but that's the reality. <laughs> so what is going to incentivize whatever group you're working with, what's going to incentivize them to do this work and to understand that it's critical to their success? I think that's it. And for me, like the way to think through like a like the approach to that particular group, whatever particular group you're working with, is it like, mm -hmm. how do we get them to see that this is going to help improve whatever their goal is? If it's a corporation, oh, I hate to say it, but you know, to increase their bottom line or even worker productivity or retention. 
or if it's an academic program, even retention of students or the recruitment of, of students, it's that. It's like getting them to make those connections of why this is important and mm -hmm. to know and understand, like you said, it's not just something that's ancillary. It's not just something that's on the side. Like it needs to be central and integral to the, because yeah. it is to the work that they're doing. Uh, there's something you said I'm just having this like visceral response to it. And I wonder if you ever have this experience. I just really. Uh, okay. I personally struggle with feeling like I have to convince organizations and leaders why this is important to do. And I really struggle with having to prove here's how it affects your money or, or whatever else it is. I really struggle with that. And on some level, I try and give some information there. But I think one area that I'm just being honest. One area that I know I have been judged for is that I focus way more on employee experience than I do how it translates to services and bottom line and productivity and efficiency. I know that's important. I guess that's the thing. I get that's important, but my heart is in employee experience place, like the what is happening in the workplace, the experiences of people working there, their satisfaction, their safety, their wellness, that, that stuff is more important to me than the other things. And I feel like when I say that, I'm saying other people don't care about that. And that's not it. It's just I don't think I do a great job of connecting those external dots. I don't like doing it. It bothers me. And maybe that makes me a not traditionally successful DEI person. But I just, I don't know how you feel about that. I just had to say that out loud to release it for myself. I don't like doing that. I hate it. I think the first thing I want to focus on, you said something about your heart, like your heart isn't there. And I also want to say this just to get it out in the universe is that we all need to trust our inner selves. If that's our gut or our heart. Or like whatever inner voice that we have inside of us that's telling us in, in any situation, even like I think about in terms of safety, if your gut, your insides are telling you this doesn't feel right or this doesn't feel safe or I don't want to work this way, that's what we should follow. And if I think that's what makes you a, a good and exceptional DEI expert is because you're not following this traditional path. You're following your heart. And the, my take on it is that you focus on the worker because to me, like that is what's most important. And it counters the, the white supremacy culture that like places this hierarchy of who's important and what we and who and what we should focus on, as opposed to the folks at the bottom, like the line staff or whatever. But we know that like the line staff are the ones that set the tone. They're the ones who actually do the work. And if they're happy and they're fulfilled, uh, they're going to produce, then it's it's trickle up versus trickle down. That's what's going to be most effective. And the folks at the top are the ones that are used to, we need to focus up here or whatever, like the discomfort that doesn't feel comfortable to them. It, it's nuanced to them. It's not something that they're used to, so they are going to fight it. And mm -hmm. so I think that you're absolutely right in what you're doing and focusing on the folks that are most overlooked. If your organization's having problems, it's like, well, why don't we try something different than what we've always been doing? Yes. 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 Thank you for saying that. That was yeah, I'm not just blowing good to smoke. hear. I, I, I believe you. I don't think you're going to say something just to say it. <laughs> yeah. With, with that being a reality for me, and I'm, I know that you, I heard already in your example of letting clients go or you being cool with them, letting you go, whatever it is that you feel the same way. And one of the things that makes it, that can be challenging to keep going, like I'm gonna keep going. But one of the things that comes up against it and just challenges me is when looking out into the universe and seeing what is available, there's still an overwhelmingly amount of people offering similar 
services in the field of DEI. Similar in their own special way, but similar. And it doesn't usually go to those deeper places and asking people to stay there. Mm-hmm. And one of my, like I said, struggle points is sta- like really staying grounded in that and knowing that there are organizations and leaders who will look at what we are grounded in and judging that and judging it, you know, thinking that this is not a helpful thing to do or thinking this is the wrong way to go because they can see all the other examples out there telling them that's what it should look like. I just go back to that first thing you said. In my heart, I just, I know the struggle points. After doing, serving others and serving leaders for so long, I know the struggle point is not how do I get more information to learn. I know it isn't. Right. It is truly struggling with how to use this information, how to speak things out loud, how to hear stuff, how to self-regulate, how to be challenged, how to change a behavior that's been ingrained for how to do that is what people don't know how to do. And that is a service that is nowhere near as common in the surface saturation place. And -hmm. I think I'm saying this out loud for myself too. I'm saying this for myself because of all the judgment that I begin. But this is the thing that needs to be paid attention to. I will really stand here and be so clear about that. It's just so certain about that. I just had a whole moment. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Hopefully you're feeling what justified in in the work that you do and how you do it. It may, also makes me think like when I was at, when I worked at Cal State Dominguez Hills, like it's a relatively small program. It's not like nationally ranked and all of that. But I used to say that Dominguez Hills program is a boutique MSW program. So like you mm. go to a boutique hotel, um, it's smaller it's very personalized, like you, you're you made to feel like you matter. That's the way I see the work that I do. And that's what I'm hearing in the work that you do. Like we're going to offer you a unique and different experience and everything else that's out there. Like we're not a chain. We're not this mm-hmm. huge chain that has hotels all around the world. We do something very different. And it obviously it's not going to be for everybody. And for myself, I can't operate any other way. I probably could have more contracts and work with a bunch of other different clients if I were to do that surface saturation type work, but I couldn't survive doing that. My soul could not survive doing that. I'm just, I'm sure like you too, we're just going to keep doing us and we're going to hopefully attract the people that are ready to do that work. But that is something that I've learned. I've only been doing this for three years Mm -hmm. and something that I've learned in that time is that, yeah, like my, the way I approach my work isn't the way, isn't for everybody. And the, one of the things that I've learned is that I have to put that up front. I have to put that out there up front for people because I don't want to waste their time and I don't want them to waste my time. You Mm -hmm. need to know up front that if you want to call my services unconventional, it's not going to look the same as other type of work, but this is the way I do it. And sometimes I think about because this work is long term and I wonder if the organizations that have fired me because I am offering like longer term services like I this is what I have in my mind that comes up sometimes is maybe they think that I'm just trying to milk this, you know, and like extend it Mm -hmm. out because I want the work for longer period of time or whatever. But that's not the case. Yep. This is long term work and the stuff that. And then again, it goes to like white supremacy culture of you have to see results and everything is, it's a a sense of urgency is one of the characteristics. You have to see results like now with the social work, we know it's about building relationships, building that professional intimacy that takes time. And in order to do this work and do it in the right way, you have to spend time doing that first. And that's the part that's not going, that's going to feel like nothing's happening or nothing's getting done. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see if it keeps us employed. <laughs> uh, you know what? I don't know. It's not, I get asked a lot of questions from different people about number of clients or money or my interest in doing stuff to make money. I, I get that a lot. And I'm really not making this up when I, say this to people i i really do not move to make money i don't 
I mean, we didn't choose social work to be rich, so. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. There's because if I did want to move to make money, I would actually have to do some things that don't feel right for me. Like mm -hmm. I really would, mm -hmm. and I've been in the same situation as you. I've had clients where we've had conversations about the service that we're providing and their experience. And I care very much about these relationships that I have with all clients. And so we talk about the experience. I hold the things that are mine and there's still this reality that there, the service we offer cannot be offered in the way that you want it. Although yeah. there's plenty of places that you can go to get that type of experience. I have, I honestly started out doing that more than I wanted to with myself and even our other consultants. And just, it, it had such an impact on us as DEI practitioners. It had such an impact on us that did not feel good. We just had to get to a place where it was okay to not take clients, not to provide a service mm -hmm. and not prioritize the money. It's really easy when you're starting a business to want to do things to bring yeah. in clients and money. And ultimately, it just doesn't feel right, you know, and it's okay. So when you say, hopefully we can get, I'm like, well, get what we're supposed to get. Like, it's very much for me, purpose-driven work. And at this point, I'm really just doing things to try to share as much information as possible and build a community that wants to engage in the deeper stuff together. And I just know, just, I just know that we're not for everybody too. That's okay. It's absolutely yep. okay. Everybody's not for us. We're not for everybody. And I think that getting like clear about that for people leading this work is super helpful. And I'm now thinking about the other side of the, co the coin, individuals and organizations overall. If you're at that place of, okay, I can tell we're doing some surface stuff. We want to do differently. I wonder, like, are there some things that we can share tangibly? If you're in this place and you hear yourself in what we're saying and you acknowledge, okay, crap, we would like to go deeper. What are some things that people can do? When you say people, you mean like people within organizations that are already doing this work or attempting to? Yeah. So if they're hearing themselves, they would hear, they're already trying to do this work. They've already engaged in it and would mm -hmm. need to go deeper. I think too, that whatever we're sharing can apply to people who haven't started and can have on their radars what to avoid and how to go deeper when they reach that point. But I am talking about, yeah, the organizations, the leaders in the organization staff. If you're in the surface place, mm -hmm. what can you do differently? Yeah. Yeah. I think two things. One, I keep thinking as we've been talking, I keep thinking about Grace Lee Boggs. One of her quotes is transform yourself to transform the world. And it's something else that I was introduced to in reading Adrian Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy, where like with organizing type work, it's like inch deep and mile wide versus inch wide and mile deep mm. of like when you're trying to create change, you want to, in general, like most folks like want to create change, like at a larger level, you want to affect as many people as possible. What Adrian Marie Brown, and then she's the one who quoted Grace Lee Boggs in her book, was like reminding us of is we need to do that internal work first. We need to look inside first and go deep within first because I think then the idea is like we're going to go further in creating change at this larger level if we start to transform ourselves. So getting back to someone's in this space, what can they do or whatever? It's really like you need to look inside. People approach me and they think that they're at a certain point on their anti-racist journey, intersectional anti-racist journey. And they think that they're good and they're like, my people need this. Obviously, they're not explicitly saying that, but they consciously believe it. I'm here and I need to bring my folks along with me. There's really a lot of internal self-work, that critical self-analysis mm. that needs to happen. Take an honest look at yourself. And because like with white supremacy culture, we all 
participate in it and perpetuate it regardless of what we look like, regardless of our intersections of power, privilege, mm -hmm. oppression. We're all in it together. And that means that we need to do that self-work first. And that can also mean, so the other part that I was going to get to is that also means people and folks in power may need to take a step back take a step back and say, I've recognized that I need to do this work and I may not be the person to be leading the organization at this time. I need to step back mm. and let us, someone else lead, or I need to step back and do my self-work first. And that goes back to the fact that this takes time. You're not going to see change right away and don't get frustrated if you're not seeing change happen, even in six months. You might see some, a little bit of movement forward, but know that this is going to take time. Yeah. Yeah. When you said leaders might need to stay, take a step back, and I just knew. I said, oh, you're going to make people uncomfortable with that. Like, wow. I love that, though. I actually have not. I have not heard that. I really have not. Mm. It's fascinating to think about. It really is. In what capacity can I serve an organization that is trying to transform? In what ways am I contributing to or in the way of is there any part of my own journey that's halting the direction? So do I need to change my capacity? That's fascinating. I had not heard that. And I love the focus on the inner self. It does take time, especially when people are wanting to do a bunch of strategies in the organization. When the suggestion is, hey, have you looked at yourself? Putting the self and that whole process in the equation of wanting to do all those things, it drastically lengthens a process that people are conceiving. Right. And I think that's another reason why people would avoid. So I love that suggestion, too. I think realistic expectation setting, too, of all of the stuff that we're talking about is, yeah, it does. When we say years, I still don't think, just as I said earlier, that when we say, hey, it's hard for people to grasp what that is until they're in it. When we say it's long, it's hard for people to grasp what it is until they're in it. And then when they're in it, in both of these places, there's an association with something must be wrong. It's not going right. And those are the places to, can we hold here? Or not hold, but can we proceed in this area? Because this is the place that you will stop. Keep going. Yeah. And I, for me, I want to bring it back to the place that we started. Because we were talking about these different acronyms. And you use anti-racist, intersectional, I say DI, you talked about JEDI, and then there's EDI, and then I there's DDIB, and then there's so many different acronyms. And if I were to suggest anything, just even in that area, it's be mindful of how much time is spent there, because it's not important to pick an acronym that sounds good, feels good. An approach should be chosen based on the specific needs and experiences that are happening in an organization. What will happen is people look out into the world and say, oh, that's, we like that one. That one feels good. And we want to do that. We want to bring it here. And then it just gets plastered all over websites and documents and internal things. But it did not get selected or chosen from a thorough understanding and account of what is happening in an organization. When people choose outward things and bring them in to fit inside and do not base it off of a really good understanding of the needs of an organization, it will be a miss. It yep. will absolutely be a miss. Mm -hmm. And another suggestion is to be mindful of the balance that's needed between Language. Language is important in organizations so everyone has a shared understanding of what things mean and the direction and all of that other good stuff. But places will spend so much time in word land that there is an avoidance of action because people want another white supremacy culture characteristic is worship of the written word. Like people just want like the words. Like I just, these make me feel good and will committee the words to. They'll spend so much time and not go into action. So I just, I want to be clear that language is important, but to find the balance. Having the right acronym, having the right words to share on a website, having the right, th that's not the only factor. And 
in all that you do, it really does need to connect to the actual need, not the perceived one based on someone else's stuff that seems like it works for them. Not that. And when it is rooted in the need of an organization, the needs of employees and and that need being understood beyond a survey, like a real need. It could be surveys, it could be focus groups, it could be like personal, a really solid understanding. When we develop things based on that need, there is a certainty in the approach then. You can always go back to knowing what your organization needs and then deciding together from there where to go instead of choosing outside and coming in. That would be my suggestion or suggestions. I don't even know. I said a few things. Yeah, no, I love all of that. And you're, I completely agree with all of it. As you were talking, I was thinking, I think that it can be how to start the process or how to move forward for organizations. Just tie it into your strategic planning process, right? It could be just an organization or whatever it is. And when I say organization, I mean, whatever you want it to be. If it's a small group of people, an academic program, if it's a large corporation, whatever, there's a problem. Like things aren't, people aren't happy or we want to respond to this. I think two things, like one, tie it into your strategic planning because then you don't have to tie some language or acronyms to it. This is part of our, if you want to call it, if you recognize that your organization needs change, or needs transformation, call it transformative work. But then also start with conversations. Get together and start to have conversations of talk to your the your line staff, like the workers of what is going on? How are you feeling? What are you not happy with? What is working? Just start to talk to each other and see what comes up from that. It's like when you're writing anything an article or a chapter or a book, you write first and then you write your intro at the end or you, then you title it afterwards because you're just getting it all out and then you could start to maybe put some sort of structure around it. So that would be following up on what you just said. That would be my contribution to that. I got to add something to what you just said too. Because <laughs> then I thought for places that decide, okay, that sounds good for me. Let me do that. Another expectation setting thing that organizations don't fully prepare for, even if they're well-intentioned and trying stuff, is when you have the conversations, when you do different methods to understand what's happening in an organization, you will hear. It's not a if, it's you will hear things that are hard to hear that don't make you feel good. That that could be about you as an individual leader. It could be about leadership teams. It could be about specific teams. There is going to be stuff that you hear that you don't like, that doesn't feel aligned with who you are as a person, doesn't feel real to you because you feel like you have an understanding, doesn't feel like it makes sense given some of the feedback you get from people that you trust that maybe aren't giving you a full picture. There is going, there is a reality that you will hear all of these things and to expect that and to prepare for your own internal response to that is going to want to be to reject it, mm-hmm. to find a way to discount it, to be defensive, to want to step away. That I've seen it so many times. When given real information, I've seen a lot of responses to reject and discount and avoid, be angry, retaliate against this very thing that you said that you wanted to do. Because I think the expectation was, I'm doing good work. I just need the information to do good work. Part of your good work is knowing what will happen when you open the door to the feedback. And I felt that I had my own responsibility to be clear about that very real experience, human experience. There's nothing wrong with it if you choose to lean into it and change. There can't be something wrong with it if you are very well aware this is going to happen. You do all of this work, you hear from people and you decide, never mind, I don't like it. It's not real. That can do some real harm. So I appreciate what you said. And I just wanted to add that extra part because it's a really real thing. Yeah, no. That's important. Thank you yeah. for adding that. We could just keep going because I know. 
What you just said made me think about what that takes to be able to take that in. Preparing folks where you're going to hear something that's hard. And then I think about Brene Brown also as like the vulnerability and the shame. And also the fact that leaders are very seldom taught to be leaders. People get placed into management positions for various reasons and in leadership positions for various reasons. And there very rarely is any sort of like training or anything that goes along with it. So they're placed in this position of greater responsibility and mm-hmm. folks don't know what they're really getting into and know what it takes to lead in this way where leaders have to be, if they want to be infected, infected, effective, yeah. they have to be vulnerable. They have to be humble and they have to understand well, we all have to understand these things, but shame, you know, is what I was going to say. When you get called out or called in on something, like you feel shame and we have to know how to react and respond to that and to understand, mm-hmm. like you said, too, that's just part of the human experience. And yeah. I think that's something else that can work in our favor when we're working with folks is that all of this is tied to the human experience. These are all human feelings, real human feelings that we have that we need to take ourselves out of our comfort zone to step into vulnerability Mm -hmm. being the main one for me. Right. Mm -hmm. And for leaders, it's the humility part. Yes. 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 Oh, I promise it's going to be the last thing I say to add to, I don't know. I don't even know if I can keep that promise. Never mind. I just, I feel inclined to give a, an example of good intentions and faced with reality, with what it can look impact. like. Maybe, not explicitly. Okay. But what I mean is, because we're talking about hearing from an organization or hearing from staff to know how to do different. And after conducting a pretty thorough account of what's going on in an organization, via focus groups and things like that, and putting together a good sense of what was happening, it was presented to a leadership team. The response from the leadership team was angry, upset, and a denial of what was there. (laughs) And their proof of it not being real is hearing from some people who participated in the focus groups, that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, it was a little, it was interesting. And I still, every time I get feedback, I really want to hear And are there any, maybe I'm missing something. It's possible. I don't think so because we also go through recordings of these things to, to theme it. And I, I tried to hold a level of, hold them accountable to a level of curiosity. We agreed to come back, came back after watching it again, watching them again. It wasn't just one video and came back with a a certainty of our, what we're sharing with you is accurate. Uh, As a facilitator of those focus groups, I am certain and can tell you that this is accurate. And it was still just denial from a leader in the organization. And in that space, I'm getting messages from leaders in that same room with them at the same time telling me how they really feel and how the leader has chosen to practice not believing because they hear from other people things that make them feel good about their decision to not engage. I'm getting actual messages. And it was such a real life example of being presented with very real information, coming back and saying, hey, myself and other people, our research eval, we're very certain this is the case. I shared why it's possible that this person would hear different messaging for people in the focus groups, maybe there's fear that they're associated with that. So that relationship, which I tried to explain those dynamics, it was complete dismissal. And it was really fascinating that in that same room, there are people messaging that they don't agree, but they know the outcome of the situation because of how the leader has led. And it, you know, it made me, I remember that made me very, very sad. I was frustrated too, but it was, it was a reality. Sometimes there are people who might not be ready, haven't done that internal work. And I'm giving this example because this is what it can look like if you don't do the internal work. If you're not prepared to hear, if you don't know what your initial response is going to be, you are sitting in a position of power to choose 
to do or not do something with this information. And unfortunately, this person chose to not do. And we also decided to sever our professional relationship as contractor contractee. That's real. And I think that's why I'm sharing it. This is real stuff that happens. And I would hope that maybe with time, that person might decide to do differently and maybe the impact isn't continuing to exist there. My goodness, it's significant if people do not choose to really know themselves. Yeah. It's so significant. Yep. Mm. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. Yes to all of that. Like that. self-work and if the people that are in like leadership positions don't recognize that they have to do the self-work they're going to get anywhere and that's what's so sad and frustrating is that this person is like the holder of power and potential for change but if because those folks that were messaging you on the side they don't have the power or they didn't feel empowered to because there's more than one of them to challenge in that space to openly challenge mm-hmm. the leader for fear of consequences, I'm sure. So then then it just all falls apart because of this one person. Yeah. And folks in leadership positions need to understand that, need to understand mm-hmm. that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. In terms of how do you do that self-work? Yeah. And like when I do present or did because i'm trying to move away i'm I'm moving more towards doing that deeper work and away from one-time trainings and stuff but when i did trainings on like crt critical race theory 101 when i talked about the different tenets and things and understanding like the tenets that like race is a social construction racism and other isms are ordinary like they happen every day understanding those in context understanding that We have been socialized here in the United States to believe certain things about certain groups of people for centuries. So not just I've been socialized to think a certain way in my, I'm 47, so my 47 years, but there's centuries of socialization that have preceded me that has created the culture that we're in. And then that informs any type of information we take in, that informs whatever we watch on our screens, movies, television shows podcasts, all of these things, our textbooks, like all of that. And so it's this unlearning process that we have to go through. So it's just reiterating. And also for me, hopefully it helps folks when they're doing the self-work. It helps them take that pressure off of themselves that they're a bad person or that feeling of, I have these biases for a reason. It's not just me. I'm a bad person. I feel this way about this group of people. Well, that's that's the only message that we've gotten about this group of people our whole entire lives. Again, that's been ingrained in our society for centuries. So hopefully on some level that helps people to have a little grace with themselves and understanding this is the way I've been socialized. But then that's where the responsibility comes in of understanding like, okay, this is informed the way I now operate. It doesn't mean that I'm a bad person, but now it's my responsibility to do something with that to start to unlearn all of that. And again, that's why it takes so much time. Yes. Thank you for bringing it back to that whole human concept. It is absolutely a shared experience. It really is. It is so normal, even though we don't speak it out loud as normal. I think that's part of the hope of doing this too, is continuing to normalize it. You know, like, y'all, we all doing this. We all doing this. And even uh, what you were saying, just wrapping it up with, this whole conversation is not about one particular type of person, one particular demographic. It it is a shared experience because one group of people weren't the only people getting a message. We all get the same messages. So we all have these different ways of seeing people. We just do. and. That's normal. And that's why it's important for us to to know ourselves and know how it comes up. So thank you for doing that. Sure. This quick resource, it made me think of, so one of my colleagues, Dr. Susan Akoka, introduced me to this video. Jay Smooth has this video. I think it, it was a TED Talk. And maybe if you just Google his name and it's like, why is it hard to talk about race or something like that? It's a pretty long video, oh, but yeah. the last 15 minutes of it, he talks about that. And again, he also humanizes 
doing that self-work. And so that's just the resource I wanted to put out there for folks to look up because that I think helps humanize that this work is for all of us and that it's okay. Like we're human. We make mistakes. Yeah. And we, yeah. Yes. Oh, thank you so yeah. much, Nicole, for sure. a really great conversation. I found myself thinking and processing and Same. having to self-regulate. Same. Keeping myself contained, like, which place can I stay in this conversation? I just, I thank you so much. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? That's a great question. Instagram, my Instagram um, handle is Amor Adelante. So A-M-O-R and then A-D-E-L-A-N-T-E. Okay. That's the best place right now. And from there, okay. hopefully in the future, there'll be other ways to connect with me. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Sure. All right. Thank you for listening and and watching. If you are here with us, please share this video. Of course, subscribe, but please share this video with others so that we can continue to learn as a community. If you want to get in touch with me, you can visit my website at livingunapologetically.com. You can connect with me via social media. My links are there. There are tools that are available to help you deepen your practice. You'll also have access to my book, Bias Conscious Leadership, a framework for leading with action and accountability. Other than that, thank you so much for listening. I hope to connect soon. And until then, bye.